the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Like Frank Sinatra's retirement, which meant he wasn't done, we have Hugh Hallman making his triumphant return from parts Eastern European, joined by his son. East Asian, actually. Central Asian. Asian? East European or Eastern Asian? We start off with a correction. Central Asia. Central. Can we call it Eurasia? Uh, you could. In which case, I'd be half right? Sort of. Uh, so Central Asia is Kazakhstan and the folks around them. So All right. But if I say Europe and it's Eurasia, I'm half right. No, you're not. So Europe would include Ukraine, but not Kazakhstan and Russia. And you see and why we keep Ural him around. Mountains. Lewis Holman, who's always uncontroversial, <laughs> is the president, managing director of Inside Analytics, Inside Analytics, LLC. We are delighted to have him. We talk COVID. We talk politics. Let's start with COVID. What's new? What's interesting? I was going to actually start with Gerald Ford. I think it cost him the presidency that he didn't remember that Poland was behind the Iron Curtains in a similar way. So we have to make sure that you're right on target. Poland is to Kazakhstan as... um, Automobile is to a boat. Riding a bicycle with a fish. I mean, I just... I am not... My error was not as bad as Gerald Ford. No, it wasn't. Uh, Gerald, Gerald Ford... I'll give you the Gerald Ford defense. Please. The people of Kazakhstan think they're European. No, no, they don't. They know very full well that they're Mongol descendants who have Turkic influence, and as a result, they migrated across the Bering Strait and populated the Americas. Um, yes, but can you talk about non-defensive mutual collateral estoppel? Uh, yes, I certainly can. <laughs> okay. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we apologize for the break in the action here. Uh, but let's go back to COVID. That is our stock in trade in this instance. And it's my turn to do the COVID numbers because Lewis is geared up for why COVID is now the dress rehearsal for the environmentalists who didn't quite get it right prior to the pandemic, but now have learned the lessons of how to use fear uh, in order to uh, uh, push an agenda. So the COVID numbers remain uh, what uh, I think our narrative uh, was about through the entirety, and that is that the panic and fear-mongering that was going on during uh, the peak infection rates was such that it drove us to take action uh, and have government impose lots of uh, use of power to herd the cats into the rooms they wanted to herd them into. And I think in your last hour with uh, Congressman Schweikert, you were talking about the fact that masking continues for lots of people, notwithstanding the fact that the CDC has issued its now science-based guidelines, it says, that says that folks who have been vaccinated no longer really need to be wearing masks indoors or out, and that uh, even the city of Tempe is issuing uh, its new mask guidelines saying that the city is withdrawing its mask mandate, that uh, vaccinated people no longer need to be wearing masks inside or outside and even in city facilities that businesses can continue to require masks, that police will enforce 
a private business's right to require a mask. But other than that, uh, the plea is merely that if you've not been vaccinated, please consider wearing a mask to reduce spreading the virus uh, from one person to another. Why? The why remains and should remain that we don't want to overwhelm our hospital and medical systems. But the reality is, looking at the numbers, that in the state of Arizona, we are at a point where we have 16 percent of our ICU beds empty. 16 percent. Wait a minute. I thought that was terrible. That got us headlines seven and eight months ago when uh, the worst day, uh, which was January 17th, 2021, we had 7% of our ICU beds empty. That was 130 beds were empty. And at this stage, we have 276 beds empty. Why are we not gnashing our teeth and rending our garments at the Arizona Republic about the fact that we're in a huge emergency and if we don't all stay in our homes, we might overwhelm our medical systems? In our inpatient beds, we currently have 14% of those beds empty. Uh, and at the worst, during the pandemic on January 11th, 2021, we had 8.5% empty. So we are not very far off of the continuing use of our hospitals for exactly what they're intended. You have to have, as in hotels, butts in beds or you go out of business. And so the entire, uh, I would argue, the entire push by uh, several of our larger hospital organizations was to get back their elective surgery money uh, and keep people at home to not have uh, beds filled with COVID patients, but instead have them filled with elective surgery patients where they make more money. Uh, that was solved in part by having the federal government increase the Medicaid, Medicare payouts by 20 percent uh, to hospitals for every COVID patient, which then led hospitals to test every patient who came in for COVID, whether they were there for a hip replacement or for COVID symptoms. So we had COVID uh, patients and we had hip replacement patients that were COVID positive. Yeah, I, I just want to make sure that I understand something that you just said. So the entire peak to trough difference in total aggregate ICU bed use in the state of Arizona after all of the complaints and all of the attention and all of the concerns, the drawdown was about 170 beds? 155. 155 beds. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. And so our entire success or failure yeah. as a human race was 155 ICU beds. Keeping in mind, None of this includes the surge beds, right. which are another 25% of capacity that was available at all times. And, and never, never made available. And never utilized. And, and never mind what National Guard and military could always provide or FEMA if needs That's be. correct. Okay. And, and it was that we were going to have ice trucks pulling up at hospitals uh, so we could load in the corpses and all the other fear-mongering that was going on. Now, did that happen in some places on the planet? Yeah, Italy had a pretty bad run of it early on, as did France. But uh, and now now India. But the reality is the United States uh, was pretty well positioned and we now can talk about the death rates. We still have uh, approximately two percent mortality rate in the state of Arizona and approximately one point seven five percent mortality rate in the country broadly. Why worse in Arizona? Because we're heavy in seniors and the senior population, 65 and over, is responsible for 80% of all the deaths from COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. But the big footnote remains on this, that that is only the number of people who passed away over the number of cases that were reported. 
And we knew early on in the pandemic that because we had short supplies for testing materials, if you have symptoms, please do not get tested unless you are in dire need. And so we had a huge number of people who were asymptomatic or low symptomatic not going into the system early on. Then we had uh, the craziness of we're testing uh, not patients but uh, incidences of testing. So we don't we have over testing of positive cases. I was an example of that when I had COVID-19. I tested on day one, positive, tested this wasn't a false positive. There's a second positive. cases. And then I was tested 10 days later. That was three positive cases for one human being. Mm -hmm. All of that then is cases. So that actually inflates the denominator. So uh, we might have had a higher mortality rate because we did such a bad job gathering and analyzing the data. That continues. Why do I say that? More because likely, it was a lower mortality. Rate. It is probably more likely because we had it's people because who were worried. Asymptomatic stuff, right. right? That that effect would probably dominate right. given the scale right. of this. Yes, right. and so we could still have looking at the uh, medical reports probably. on asymptomatic probabilities. Someplace between fifty percent and eighty percent of the cases were asymptomatic and not tested, which would then cut these numbers by half or by one uh, to one-fifth. So you could have as low a mortality rate as 1%. You could have as low a mortality rate as something like 0.4. Um, uh, that's twice flu. And so the massive reaction we had gives us a screwed-up data mess that we cannot now analyze instead of, as Lewis and I were advocating even in the state of Arizona, that we go out and start doing some sampling to see how many asymptomatic cases we have and what the proportions are. We didn't do that, and now we've vaccinated lots of people, so we can't actually develop that data. There were some uh, tests that That's were run on we ruined that ability. Yeah, you can't now right. test that. Right. Spoiled and, is the better word. Correct. And so there were some uh, studies done on uh, small populations. There's a, a wonderful study on 1,400 firefighters that indicated how many of them were uh, exposed to because they had uh, antibodies to the disease without having been vaccinated, and it looked like about 80 percent of the firefighters in this particular study uh, were positive for antibodies, but most of them did not show symptoms. And so that gives you some information about uh, what the, the, the right answer would have been. More interestingly, you've now got organizations like The Economist trying to go backward and figure out what the real mortality rate should be around the world because so many countries do such a bad job, they're poor and they don't have a lot of resources to spend, on figuring out what proportion of people have died from COVID-19 compared to what's been reported. And in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, it's about one-eighth is likely of the people who've been reported to have died from COVID than actually died because uh, they just didn't have the way to do it. Well, they've also now, as a result, attributed every death that is over the expected number of deaths in the world to COVID-19. When we come back, I want to touch on that a little bit as the fear-mongering, if we may. Yeah, I, and, I, I and do, and I'm comments. glad you set that table the way you did, Hugh, because it's a, it's a refresher we haven't had in a while. We're moving into a different area of conversation, and I think the wrong one. I think we have to stick with what you said because going forward is going to be the question how society moves forward. I have my own suspicion. I want to run it by you based on everything you said and what we've learned over the last year. Invite callers, too, if they want, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. We have a lot of Hallmans in the studio today, and it makes me happy because it is a blessed event. 
we are commemorating today, yes? We are. It is uh, the 30th anniversary of my uh, saying I do to the woman sitting immediately to my right who will likely remain quiet. Um, and she said uh, I do back, I think, as I recall how it went. She, um, you've been married to her happily for 30 years. She has been 30 years. We've married, been married to you we, for a year. Yeah, we've been married for 35 years. <laughs> been, yeah. uh, okay. It is our 30th wedding anniversary. Wonderful. That is true. That's and great. So uh, that's why she What's is sitting here. What's the secret to a long marriage? Um, I don't know that you'll like this answer, but I still believe the secret to a long marriage is a very high level of indifference between the two partners on most things. So that fighting is not really an issue. Mm-hmm. We, there's just not a whole lot that we think is important enough to fight about, I, I suspect. So the new wedding gift should be something like what? Beyond Good and Evil? A copy of Nietzsche's book? or You know, th- you. that might work. Uh, something by Siddhartha Buddha would work as yeah, well. Yeah. Attachment being the root of all suffering and all Nihilism conflict in this dummies. case. Some- <laughs> That's us. Nihilism for dummies. <laughs> uh, no, we're experts at it. So after 30 years... No, there years is this. Nihilism. I was telling you, in Annie Hall, he walks down the street and he didn't get nihilism, but he did talk to... Uh, a couple that explained that the secret to the longevity was that they didn't have any big thoughts or deeply care about anything. I do. I guess that's close. <laughs> I guess that's close. <laughs> I deeply care about my wife that and is my not children. The two and of you, you. you two are like the most intellectual house in Arizona. It's um, it's a delight to have you, and congratulations. Thank you on your anniversary. Many more, um, Hugh. Given everything we have learned about COVID, the egress from it seems to be the thing we're choking on now. Vietnamization of this crisis. That's a good way to put it. We cannot figure out how to get out of this and declare victory is the big problem. Here's what I think will happen. Can I tell you? Please, please. No, no, no. Go. Here's what I think will happen. I think there are these people that say they worry we're not taking seriously anymore because the mask coming off. And I kind of understand where they're coming from. There is a new laxity, but I think it's fine. I I, I think it's the laxity we should have always had, quite frankly, but it's clearly there now. And so what I think is going to happen is just for the next, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years, perhaps perhaps, uh, your better half is is more expert at this. I I just think some people will get sick and some won't and we're just going to carry on and it will – you know, masks will be irrelevant. Some will get vaccinated. Some won't. And mostly the old people and the obese will be most affected. That's what I think. And there's not going to be any accounting for what's happened over the last year and a half. That's my sense. I think you're probably right that there will be a slow move to that final position, that uh, the virtue signaling by the various sides of I'm not going to mask and I do mask are going to continue to some degree, but eventually we'll turn the page. And that the reality is, I think Lewis has pointed this out more carefully and correctly than almost anybody I've read or talked to, uh, and that includes all the learned journals, and that is that this is an endemic disease now, and we've got variants of it. Uh, is it the uh, South African variant that is now uh, transmitted by or South carried Afri- by? South African is rodents. Yeah, England rodents. is 70% uh, more transmissible, and the Brazil one allows for reinfection. But the the point about the South African one is now we've got rodents that are going to be carrying that variant. 
how are we going to rid the world of rodents? I don't think it's possible. And so we now have an endemic disease that is going to continue to infect and reinfect. And the issue is those people most vulnerable to it have uh, gotten it, succumbed to some degree. We've got a high mortality rate in the 75 and above and 85 and above demographics. And it is interesting. I think, Lewis, uh, I was not here, but I did listen to the show uh, from Kazakhstan, and he made the clear point that $6 trillion has been spent to avoid the mortality that we last experienced in 2004. Right. That effectively the – and this, I think, is the point to pivot – that we now have, quote, excess deaths, unquote, that is more deaths than were would have been expected in a normal year. And places like The Economist are now running models saying that we need to account for those excess deaths and attributing all of them to COVID-19, meaning SARS-CoV-2. And I think Lewis's analysis, and he keeps running this carefully, and I'm going to pivot to him here, is that the fear-mongering that's gone on about this fails to recognize that a large chunk of those excess deaths came about not because someone was infected with SARS-CoV-2 and died from COVID-19, but that they failed to get their diagnosis for heart disease or cancer or something else because they couldn't get into an emergency room or a hospital, or they were locked into their home or they were afraid, or they committed suicide or... Uh, Overdosed on drugs. Overdosed on drugs, all the other deaths. And if you look at the different studies between the United States using a 60-day protocol, if you tested positive within 60 days of your death, you, you, uh, you, I'm going to get there, Lou. You're going to get it. Uh, that if you tested positive 60 days, within 60 days of your death, you're a COVID-19 death. When in, uh, in England, they changed it to 28 days and you had a 40% drop in COVID deaths. Right. 60% drop. Uh, so Lewis's so we're point. Off, we're off by 40 to 50%. Yeah. So Lewis's brilliant insight yeah. is the right one, yeah. that a huge part of these excess deaths were not caused by the disease, but caused by the cure. I can lay out the numbers, in fact. And do it, Lou. So we're, we have seen uh, in 2019 approximately 2.85 million deaths. And in 2020, the number was about 3.35 million, a little over than 500,000. I think it's actually about 520,000. That's U.S. Excess deaths in the United States. Now, SARS-CoV-2 counts for, per the CDC, 340,000 of those deaths, meaning that there are about another 180,000 excess deaths from all other causes, which would be then these delays in patient screenings and all of the other issues that you just laid out. Now then, if we add that piece that we may be overcounting deaths because the, our method of counting is simply... Overcounting did you, COVID deaths. Excuse, yes, because our method of counting is simply, did you die within 60 days of a positive test, irrespective of cause? And so if we change that to the English standard, which most of the developed world uses, the 28-day standard, we then fall from about 340,000 COVID deaths to something along the lines of 180,000. 170,000. And so then we get to the point where it is entirely possible that many more people, in fact, died as a result of our panic, system shock, logistical fallout, and all of these other assorted issues that came with our response to the crisis rather than as a result directly from the virus. Because the excess death number was? 
Well, the excess death number was 540,000 in total. Right. 520,000, excuse me. only 180 or let's say 200,000 of them are actually SARS-CoV-2 deaths, then the balance are people who died as a result of the response. But even if you take the the data at its face and accept the 60-day standard, then fully half of the people that died in the virus, half of that number died as a result of the effort to prevent it Uh in terms of excess deaths. That's right. Just staggering. And then throw in the fact that we've destroyed the economy around the world and hundreds of millions of people have been thrust back into extreme poverty. We paid $6 trillion for this outcome. Yes. $6 trillion. Dennis Prager said it is the worst public policy decision in the history of the world. He may not be wrong. He may not be wrong. He may not be wrong. I'm Seth Liebson. They're the Hallmans. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Hugh and Lewis Hallman are my guests, as they always are in studio in their third hour on Tuesdays. Lewis, were you about to make a point on the numbers we were just talking about, or was it this article that had you? Yes, there was this fascinating article. I think the setup is this, that we've learned from the pandemic how certain folks can beat the right drums to create fear, fear and surprise, and... Uh, that fear has been used, and I think you discussed this with Congressman. We'll go Schreck out with the, the Spanish hour. Inquisition. Yeah, that okay. that fear drove a lot of policymaking, and it demonstrated that there are lots of people who can be motivated by fear uh, to do what those in power want to have done. I would say specifically fear combined with government oversight, because a lot of the the push from COVID and a lot of the editorialization was about states and municipalities specifically making it illegal to go out and and facilitating things like we saw in L.A. where the mayor there set up uh, hotlines that you could snitch on your neighbors. I think we set it up here in Phoenix, the mayor. That that was going on constantly. And so now we have something. The mayor of Phoenix did that for Easter. Correct. Sounds a little bit like 1984 and that we have uh, the former Soviet Union descending upon us, which is people snitching on one another and getting rewarded for snitching so that you get a, a greater amount of snitching and a breakdown of trust within the society. So now that's w- what we saw happening in this pandemic, and it was a pretty good practice run for folks who want to exercise increasing amounts of power. And I think Lewis has realized that he's now seeing it show up on the next continuing crisis. Yes, indeed. So the old uh, rallying cry that was made by everyone thinking that the world was going to end before the COVID pandemic, back to those bleary days, uh, was climate change. And again, this is now we are starting to see, I think, the narrative pivot really move to. The Army just released a statement a day or two ago talking about its motivation to assist in the fight against climate change, particularly as it pertains to revamping uh, its uh, missions globally and also with its combat vehicle emissions. I'll tell I you right now, in the next seven days, President Biden will give a speech talking about the climate as a national security issue. Right. No, they've, they've already, they're already talking about it, in fact. This has already started. But uh, national security to be a national security issue. I, I found an article today that really crystallized the, the, the sort of head. If I could just read the headline right here. This is from CNBC. It was posted about four or five hours ago, and it's this. What 2050 could look like if we don't do anything about climate change? Hot, a constant cough, and regular mask wearing. 
it's fascinating because they're tying the exact tools that we are looking to extricate ourselves from that is the primary apparatus of enforcing control to climate change now. Now, the article doesn't go into any detail, really, about why we might need masks in the future. They assiduously make the connection to air pollution, but they don't really go into more detail than that. And so what we're really seeing is an effort to keep up the psychological pressure and use and, and continually reinforce this message that this state is there to direct our lives and ensure that we are living it in such a way as to not bring broader harm onto the community. It's this weird swap of a collective morality over uh, and upon our heads that is, to me, frankly, disgustingly un-American. The essence of the difference between a socialist communist society and a democratic capitalist society is that in the latter, an individual matters, and in the former, what matters is the collective good. And the collective good can only be managed by those in power uh, using their power to enforce it. Which then also means that the collective good has the ability to subordinate the individual and the individual To its entire That's correct. And that's hence the... the hence uh, the gulag. The gulag. Exactly right, Lewis. That you've got Stalin knowing that the, the good of the society was so much more important than the individual that tens of millions of people were starved to death or thrown into gulags and killed uh, in order to advance the cause of the the society and the and the common cause and that is anathema to the the entire founding of this country that this country was founded on the notion that individuals matter that individual choice matters and that individuals are better off when they get to exercise the most of their own authority in the broadest realm they can as long as they don't interfere with other people's and the challenge for somebody in government who wants to exercise power is that that diminishes your ability to uh, to play God. See, I think you guys have put your finger on what is so nervous-making in so much of this country because uh, most of us understand that a right of free speech, free press, certainly one could make the argument for religion as well, but for right now, free speech is the first bulwark against tyranny. And it comes coterminously at a time of crisis where we're all asked to do things a-constitutionally, if not unconstitutionally, while free speech is being taken away. This is what is so nervous-making. Let's pick up on that when we come back. We'll be right back. The Seth Liebson Show. I'm sorry, Bill. What? Go ahead. That's right. If you are caller number three right now, we will give you two free tickets to our May 25th event with Sebastian Gorka, Mike Gallagher, Andy Biggs, and myself. We'll be talking about the crisis at the border here in Scottsdale. If you are not lucky caller number three, you can get your tickets at 960thepatriot.com. 960thepatriot.com. That's our crisis at the border event. We're bringing in Mike and Seb and Andy will be with us. It'll be great. Might even get the Hallmans there if I can figure out the timing. And I'm just I'm just stunned that there's a crisis at the border in Scottsdale. <laughs> uh, I trust you actually mean the border between crisis the United at States the border and, event in, in, in Scottsdale. Okay, there event is Scottsdale. a crisis at the border of Scottsdale and Phoenix. It has to do with <laughs> has to do with street repairs, yes, but exactly. that's not the border crisis we're bringing in Gallagher and Biggs to talk about. Do you want to make that point you were making, um, yeah, Lewis, or would you rather go to calls? Your point. So, so we were talking before the break about. 
that the climate change is effectively being used as the new permanent emergency using much of the same COVID playbook that we've been seeing over the past years. Uh, 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 but the point that I was making over the break was effectively this, that client scientists or climate scientists generally commit a lot of the same professional sins that you see economists often accused of. Now, with economists, when they're talking in public, everything is very simple and straightforward. It's always a neoclassical model. Just look at the supply and demand. Everything meets in the middle. It's very easy. But then when you get behind closed doors and you start moving up the department and getting more into the nitty-gritty of it, you realize that most of what they're telling the public is nonsense and that actually it, it gets much more involved. So in, in terms of climate change, you know, everything is this, you know, hockey stick graph or very simple curve. But in actuality, you know, you're dealing with models of chaotic systems that I frankly am not mathematically qualified to evaluate very well uh, that, that are, are very, very challenging. And the trouble is that most of our journalistic class then is not equipped to report or discuss these things and bring them back as the information bearers to the rest of our society. Let me give you a great example of this. So, I was reviewing the 2017 uh, uh, UN panel on climate change's um, model methodology. Because why wouldn't he be? Well, why wouldn't I? Uh, and in it, I someone just— Someone had to. Someone had to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's about a 200-page, yeah. pretty dense document. He drew the short stick between the two of us. Yeah. But um, in it, there, the standard error, the measure of, of how much variance comes out of their model for the effects of uh, cloud cover— on temperature change is larger than the entire cumulative human effect that we have measured for the last hundred years. That they attribute to human effect. Right. So that, that is to say that there is more variance in how much vi uh, uh, the temperature is affected by cloud cover than all of the impact that we have done as a species for the past hundred years. That's in the that UN entire point seven degrees centigrade change. So, so you have to take these things apart a little bit to realize the absurdity right. of. And if you if you realize that, then how can we possibly be making conclusions that will affect the health, safety, and well-being of our entire species off something we're not even statistically confident in? If we're going to ban oh, petrochemicals yeah, we change everything. worldwide, yeah. then we have to be prepared that the entire continent of Africa is willing to starve over that because all of our pesticides, all of our fungicides, all of our herbicides, those are made with petrochemicals. And people that are ignorantly slating uh, 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 that we can magically get to the promised land if we only do what the scientists say, really honestly have no idea what they're talking about. Mm. They have not begun to look at the trade-offs of mm. these issues. Mm. Well, one of the trade-offs is related to COVID and the starvation and the lack of immunizations and a lot you of... You see the, how they're related. Yeah. We've got these permanent exactly. crises right. and the folks who want to exercise government power and authority across the globe uh, have mass mandates, for example, and uh, and the strange activity is you have to listen to the scientists except what they really mean are only the scientists that agree with them because when the cdc scientists finally said no masks are any longer required uh, indoors or outdoors for people who've been vaccinated and do understand in the united states uh, we now have on the order of 124 million people fully vaccinated 30 percent of the population with 274 million uh, doses having been given. We've got 83 out of 100 people 
in this country have received at least one dose of vaccine. Now, that's in the adult population and not kids, uh, but that is quite an incredible number. The only country that's actually exceeded that is the U.K. It's at 85 uh, people per 100, and they've uh, uh, only administered 56 million doses, so uh, about a sixth of what the U.S. has done. And the U.S. has uh, just about gotten uh, everyone who wants it. Uh, my my dear wife sitting to my right here now has to fight with people to try to get them to get the vaccine. And these are folks with comorbidities because there's enough concern and fear about it. And certainly if you're under age 20, uh, the risk of the disease is not quite the flu. And so having parents weigh the risks of the vaccine, uh, having gone through the various processes it did, is certainly, I think, a legitimate thing. If you're over 54, you probably want to get the vaccine. If you're below 54 and above 45, it's a push. And uh, folks below 44 uh, to age 20, you know, you you have to make those decisions. See, I got to stop you right there, because if you took the last... 65 seconds of this show, that would have been a totally reasonable and eminent statement from the government back starting in December, I suppose, or even a week after the election, November. Is that when back? When did vaccines become available? December, December 11th. December, December 11th. It would have been a perfectly reasonable thing if the government were on that talking point. But it hasn't been, which has led to what I believe is the hesitancy and the confusion. It hasn't been clear like that at all. Indeed, masklessness two months ago was Neanderthalism. Right. The the other issue is exactly that, Seth, that the government has burned a lot of its political and medical credibility on flip-flopping earlier in the pandemic. And so this has then caused the the sorts of people who are – kind of prone to tribalistic thinking to ossify on either side of the issue. Now, no one wants to budge anywhere. I think so. Let me give a let me give a summary or have you guys give a summary of it when we come back. We'll be right back. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Our chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. Fear and surprise are two weapons. Our fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency are three weapons. Our fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope are four. No. <laughs> Amongst our weapons. All right, Hollins. Amongst the weaponry of COVID has been fear and surprise. It's really the weaponry of the progressive left, I think, but I'll let you close out with your thoughts on it. So we were talking about climate change today as an extension of this cycle of permanent emergencies. And there are, I think, four questions that you should keep in mind, too, when this issue is brought up and being debated, only two of which are often thought of. The first question is, does climate change exist? And the second is, is it man-made? Now, the left very often takes the answer to those questions and yes, as, as yes, and then gives themselves carte blanche to do whatever they'd like with the social world or you know, uh, uh, irrespective of economic fallout or, or consequences. The third question, though, is, is climate change solely detrimental? Because even if the Earth's surface does get hotter, well, vast swaths of Siberia are suddenly arable. We can now access enormous <laughs> timber resources in the north, gem, oil, all sorts of other things. There are very complex trade-offs here that we have not even begun to study or ascertain. And we would have to factor these in before making serious choices with billions of dollars in price tags. Now, finally, the fourth question is, is climate change then um, 
uh, is it reversible? Because very often the left will use the rhetoric that it doesn't really matter what course we take. We're all doomed anyway, but we should still do these things because it would make us good people. And I have to ask myself that if that's our rationale, why bother? Right. I would just come back and say the contrast between the hard left, communism and socialism and the government outlook, and the capitalist democratic system with the individual at the heart of it is the guts of what most of our discussion and controversy is about. And I will continue and I hope through my dying days be a guy who relies on the individual as the best font of decision-making for that person's best interests, and I hope we'll win the day in the political near future to get back to a society in which that's most important. Hugely, hugely well-stated, because the opposite of that is what has been foisted on us and tried. And has been tried elsewhere and failed miserably. Exactly right. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed.